Good morning. Happy to be here with you this morning, as always. I know I say it all the time, but it, I really am. I'm happy to be before you preaching. Um, I will tell you, I, I don't envy your position not being able to preach because I'm always, when I'm preaching, I'm always connected to the sermon. And it's a lot more difficult having set over the summer and having set through some preaching throughout the years here. It's a lot more difficult to be connected to the sermon when you're not preaching. You have to definitely be disciplined. You definitely have to, you know, read ahead. You have to read after, you know, grab a commentary or something if you want to be connected. But I am definitely more connected to the text every week when I'm preaching, and I am trying to make it a habit because I wouldn't want to do something, I wouldn't want to ask you to do something that I wouldn't do when I'm not preaching to also try to connect myself with the text. I want to do something this morning before we begin, and um, I just want to open in prayer, or open the sermon part in prayer. Um, I, I don't do this often enough, but one of the reasons I, I do this sometimes before I even start is because I think all, all too often we assume that because we're here today, uh, that God is going gonna, is gonna to show up in a mighty way. And I do, I do believe that He is willing and omnipresent and, and ready but I believe that there are some stipulations for God demonstrating His power in your life today. And the first is this. I think that we need to come to this day um, having done everything that we can throughout the week and even this morning to mortify sin in our body, to kill sin. So I think that's one of the stipulations for, for God meeting with you today on an individual basis, but then collectively with us as a church. I also think that we don't need to be arrogant so arrogant to think that just because we ask that God will meet, we need to be, we need to be humble. We need to be, we need to be contrite. We need to be um, sorrowful, but also hopeful. And the other thing is this, we can guarantee that God will meet with us today when we open His Word. And so if we, if we are sorrowful and we're doing everything we can to mortify, to kill sin in our own flesh, we're coming humbly to the Lord, and then we open His Word, we can guarantee that the Lord will meet with us today. So let's, let's just do this. Let's open in prayer, and let's just pray uh, for the power of God, for the Spirit of God to meet with us, to, to change us as individuals, but to also continue to change us, to continue to change us as individuals, but to also continue to change us as a church. Lord, You are good. You are, you are good, and of your goodness, you sprout forth um, your power, your presence. Lord, you, you, you give your, your kindness, your love, your long-suffering nature, your endurance, Lord, your ability to hold and to keep us. Of your goodness, we see that you are loving to us and to others. Of your goodness, we see your salvation, but not only that, we see your ability to make us more like you and to keep us all throughout our life and to the end. Of your goodness, Lord, you take us down paths that are weird and different and strange, that sometimes hurt, that oftentimes hurt, that oftentimes are tumultuous, that oftentimes we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. But of your goodness, Lord, through that path, you promise to never leave us or forsake us. You promise to protect us. You promise to rescue us and then to deliver us. Amen. 
And so we sit here today, Lord, and we trust you because of that. You've never failed us. You have never failed us. Lord, sometimes our expectations might not be met, but you didn't fail us. You just provided us with something even greater or something different, but still better than what we could expect. God, would you speak to us today? Would you humble us today? Lord, would you help us as people along your path to to be there for each other. To open our lives and our doors. To open our hearts to be there for each other. Lord, would you teach us from your word today? We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning we're going to be in Exodus. Exodus chapter 13. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, and we're going to go through chapter 14, verse 14. Last week we talked about the Passover and how it was related to uh, the New Testament, um, the New Testament communion, New Testament communion, and how the last Passover was the Lord's Supper at um, uh, right before the night before Jesus died. And also it was the first communion. And that first communion tells us a lot about our lives. It tells us a lot about the regulations, the, the understanding that we share in the sufferings of Christ. That if we take communion, that means we are, we are showing, we are demonstrating that we belong to God. That He's in us and we are in Him and we are trusting Him. There's a lot more. If you were here last week, you got it. If you're not... You can go to VintageDeSoto.com forward slash sermons and listen to the sermon. I want to go straight into Exodus chapter 13 because I don't know how long this is going to take this morning. For your sake, hopefully within the normal amount of time. Exodus chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Equipped or in formation for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Ahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, 
and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And this is important. I will get the glory over Pharaoh and all of his host, all of his army. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. That's a key question that's been answered throughout Exodus. If you haven't been here for our Exodus series. Pharaoh asked on multiple occasions, Who is the Lord? And on multiple occasions, by the expression of his power and might, the Lord has proven it. And now, one last time, for this Pharaoh and many of his men, the Lord is going to prove who exactly the Lord is. It says the Israelites, and they did so. They did what the Lord commanded. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this we, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. Pharaoh got out the air force. The chariot was basically the Air Force. It was basically the best fighter pilots you could have. It was way faster than humans walking. It was way faster than uh, just traveling uh, in the caravan that the Israelites were carrying, carrying, uh, traveling in. So Pharaoh is coming, and he's coming with the full force of his might. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, they said to Moses, um, excuse me, let's try that again. I did that with the wrong inflection. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. One of the most difficult challenges for me in my walk with the Lord has to do something with trust. I believe that I trust the Lord. And I believe that gener generally speaking that I trust Him and that I, I depend on Him. But there are times where my controlling nature creeps in and it damages my, my trust in the Lord. Times where I feel like the Lord should be more present or more clear. Times where I feel like the answers he gives should be more appealing or Bryce-centered instead of Christ-centered. It is during these times that I'm met with my own 
sin of independence and challenged as to whether I actually trust the Lord. After all, don't we like things more orderly, more certain, more objectively understandable? If we could write out the perfect plan of God, wouldn't it look like that? Wouldn't it look more certain, more clear, more objectively understandable? It isn't good enough for Christians often to know that there's a path to victory that is established by God. We want to know the path exactly. We want to see the path. We then want to give our check off. We want to approve the path. And then we want to see the end of the path all at the same time. To which we must ask ourselves, if the majestic, God-glorifying, difficult, and God-ordained path for us is perfectly revealed so that we can see it and see how it's all played out, is it actually trusting the Lord to walk that path? If God reveals His perfect and majestic and powerful and His God-ordained plan for our life, if He laid it out perfectly for us, if we saw the end, what level of trust would we actually be displaying to the Lord? Today we see the path that the Israelites took to leave Egypt. We see that the path was the Lord's to determine that it was an unconventional path, but that it was God-led and God-ordained. We see that their path will require a lot of trust. It will require a lot of dependency upon the Lord. And even how we must do the same in our lives. How we must trust the Lord for the path that we take. Today I want to look at the events directly following the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. And I want us to see some of the same things about uh, compare some of the same things about the journey of the Israelites to the journey of the child of God. And I want us to see the faithfulness and the trustworthiness and the strength of the Lord, which allows us then to, as much as we can, through the, direct, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to rely and to trust in the path that God has for our lives. There's four different things that I see from the path that the Israelites took to victory. Now, we're only going to see the first part of this path today, but the path that the Israelites took to victory in Exodus that we can even gather for ourselves. The first is this. God's path to victory is a predestined but a strange path. God's path to victory is a predestined but a strange path. Look at verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. It's a strange path. That's what Moses is trying to say in this part of Exodus. And then we won't touch on this too much, but in verse 1 of 14, we see another aspect of the strange path. God hymns the people of Israel in. 
That's what he's saying in the first part of 14. He says he takes them around the wilderness way and he backs their back to the Red Sea and they've got Piahirath over here and, and they've got uh, Migdal over here and they are hemmed in. They can't go to their left, they can't go to their right, and the Red Sea is to the back, and we'll see in a minute that the Egyptians are in front of them. This is an odd path to victory for the almighty conquering king. I've spent much of the time in my life I've spent much of the time in my life focusing on the goodness of God to bring me to where I am today. Now, by no means in the next few minutes am I going to say that I'm, or imply even, that I'm perfect. I want to let you know by way of confession, if you don't know me, that I was a so-called Christian and also to some level uh, a womanizer. A lot of people probably wouldn't say that about me, but if I'm being truthful to myself, that's what I would say. I was a Christian in the most casual of senses, but the Lord brought me to a real and true relationship with Him. Now, by no means am I saying I'm perfect, but I have reached a point in my life to where there are more days following the Lord than there are fleeing the Lord. And for that, I'm thankful. And for that, I trust in His power. Not, not, not by me. I'm eternally grateful for that. But there is something that has always plagued me about my life, and maybe you can relate. I have often wondered, if this is where I was supposed to be, if the Lord knew I was supposed to be here, why did it take so long for Him to get me from there to here? Why all the hardships? Why the sinfulness and self-destruction? Why were so many bridges burned along the way? I imagine you have been there or maybe you're there right now. Maybe you feel, if the Lord wants me to be victorious, then why am I living such an unvictorious life? If the Lord wants me to be more than conquerors, more than overcomers, why am I living such a strange life? An unvictorious life. Why not, if he wanted me to be here, why not bring me, why not put me on the straight path? And why not bring me right to this point? This is where the Israelites were in a, in a more literal sense. Lord, why would you bring me through all these strange directions, these stops, and these pitfalls, if you knew where I was supposed to go and you knew where you wanted me to be Anyway, the Israelites are here. The Israelites are taking a a weird path. They've left a very oppressive position, but one that would have provided them some security and comfort because at least they knew the path that they they were on. And oftentimes people who belong to Christ or people who don't belong to Christ don't want to leave the path that they're on because the best that it can provide is security, but at least it's security. At least it's security. Whereas oftentimes the Lord says, Hey, look, I'm going to take your security away in a sense. I'm going to take your feelings of security away. But I will provide you with protection like you've never known or never had. 
I will provide you with, with glory and victory like you've never known, never had, or never could accomplish on the path that you're on. Now they've left this somewhat secure area. You know how I know that, they, that, it was, that the security was something they longed for. Because multiple times they say, Moses, why didn't you just leave us with Pharaoh? At least we knew what we were getting into every day. And they say it in this verse today. Now they're on a path that seems less secure. It seems more dangerous. It seems to not have an end or at least to have a negative end. One that is strange by nature because Moses admits that there were straighter paths to the promised land. There were straighter paths to victory in God. But they're on a path that has perplexed them all, that will perplex them all the way to the promised land. What made this path strange? Well, the most direct route was the Via Maris. It was the coastal highway that led straight to the promised land. It would have taken them two weeks to get from Egypt to the promised land had they taken that path. Two weeks, a short trip. But they didn't take that path. They took the desert road, the wilderness road, and instead it took them how long? Not two weeks. Forty years to reach the promised land. Now, they weren't necessarily traveling for 40 years. You know the story. They were punished for their lack of trust in the Lord. And so the generation that saw the promised land first would not go into the promised land. Instead of going the two-week way, they took the back way. This reminds me of a lot of our family trips when we were younger before GPS. Instead of going the direct way, we took the shortcut, which ended up being the back way, which felt like sometimes 40 years to get there. We know, though, that even though they took the back roads, they didn't take it for their own leisure. They took the back roads. God had a plan, and God had a purpose for getting them where they were along the path that they took. I think our verses give us some practical lessons about the predetermined but strange path of God. These aren't going to be up here because I added them after I I gave this to Blake. So you can write it down or you cannot. It'll be okay. The first practical lesson I saw was being equipped for battle is not the same thing as being ready to fight. Being equipped for battle is not the same thing as being ready to fight. Friends, I want to tell you, if you're in Christ, you are equipped with everything that you need for godliness. Everything that you need for battle. But it doesn't mean that you're necessarily ready to take on every fight. The path is where we learn to fight. The path is where we learn to be more like God. Verse 18 says that the people left Egypt equipped for battle, and yet the Lord maneuvers his people away from the Philistines or from the other hostile Egyptian strongholds which would have been along the way. But if they left equipped, if they left in formation for battle, why did the Lord maneuver them elsewhere? If the Lord could have rescued them from Egypt with all of the plagues and all of his mighty hand, with all of his wondrous works... Surely the Philistines would be nothing. Surely the rest of the Egyptian strongholds outside of Egypt would have been nothing. It appears that the Lord is rescuing them and leaving the job undone. But the Lord has His reasons. The Lord protected His people from war. 
The Lord protected his people from war, protected his people from any sort of outside infringement because the path is where endurance is learned. We learned that in James, did we not? The Bible says that hardship, that trouble, that trials produce character, produce endurance. And the person who has character and endurance will find themselves perfectly equipped for every good work. The path is where the men and women of God are trained for war. The path is where patience is tested. The path is where trust is built. Victory for us was won when we became a Christian. Well, at the cross and through his resurrection. But for us specifically when we became a Christian. But we are more than victorious. And we are more than overcomers. And if victory is for us is won at salvation, then abundant, victorious living is developed on the journey. It's developed on the path. They simply weren't ready because they hadn't been tested. And another aspect of why they weren't ready is this. Independence slowly fades in the journey to the promised land. Independence slowly fades in the journey to the promised land. They would soon find out that they could not make it on their own. They would soon find out that they were not equipped to be rogue. You know, one of the greatest lessons that I've learned and I'm still learning on the journey, and I often have to remind myself, is that I would have never gotten here from there without Him. I would have never gotten here from there without Him. If for no other reason... I relish in the fact that I was on this tumultuous path because it was on the path that I learned that I couldn't make it the rest of the way without the power of God working in my life. If there was no other reason for the path, it was to teach me and all of us that we are not independent and we are not individualistic and we are not as self-serving as we think. Everyone who has gone on this journey gets to a place of spiritual maturity because they realize their actions have real consequences, real hurts, that life is not always easy, that sometimes it's impossible, that following Jesus takes a dynamic power outside of oneself, and and that you are better together than you are alone. All of these things they learned and we learn along the path to the promised land. One of the greatest aspects of my past and the lessons I've learned from my past is that I cannot do this alone. And as independence from God and as independence from the church and as independence from Christian friends and Christian influences has faded from my life, dependence on the Lord has grown and thus spiritual maturity is coming has come and is coming. Independence slowly fades along the journey. Another lesson that we learn from this strange and predestined, predetermined path is the path you are on is the one that you are supposed to be on. Oftentimes we try to to beg and plead with the Lord to give us something else, to put us somewhere else, to give us another... Now listen, if you sin... It, because we sin, sometimes the path we're on is, is, a, is a consequence and as a result of sin. But also, the path we're on is the predetermined, strange, weird, not how we would do it probably if we had our own way path 
that God has placed for us. This does not mean if you're sitting in rebellion right now, you're where God wants you to be. If you're sitting in rebellion right now, the Bible says you need to repent and believe the gospel and start acting like you believe the gospel. But it does mean that all of your hardship, all of your hardships, all of your travels, all of your struggles are for a reason. And they're, so, they're supposed to happen the way they did. You know, people believe in the one. Have you ever heard of that? You know, obviously. Oh, I found the one. That's, so, that's stupid. Don't say that. If you say that, you're dumb. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm just kidding. You're not dumb. But um, it's a dumb statement, and here's why. Because God, because God has ordained for people to be loving creatures. And when you... When you, this, is a, this may end up being a side sermon, sorry. Uh, when you find the person that you love, do you know how you know that they're the one? You marry them. You marry them. That's how you know that they're the one. And the one is not the one that got away. And the one is not the one that's put in front of you. The one is the one you say I do to. So listen, as far as that goes... There, there is no, like, the one. The one is whoever God put in the plan for your life and you committed to. Okay? There's a point of all this. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> the plan of God for you works in much the same way. What happens in your life, the circumstances, the trials, the losses, they are a part of the preordained, strange plan of God. The things along the journey, along the path that you face, are a part of God's plan in renewing you and making you more like Christ. For the Christian we don't have much time to think about what might have been. What could have been. Because for the Christian, we trust that where we are now is what was supposed to be. When we face difficult, seemingly insurmountable trials, we look at the Lord, and even in the middle of the trial, we say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is where I'm supposed to be. Even if it hurts, even if it's awful, even if, I, even if we can't understand it, even if, sometimes guys, there are things in my life where I've never seen the light at the end of the tunnel. I've never seen the reason. I've never understood the purpose. But I understand that God has a plan and a purpose. And I understand that His plans and purposes are greater than my plans and purposes. And I trust more in God than an individual response or an individual understanding in my life. And I'm also promised, and this may seem like a cop-out, it may seem too easy, but I'm also promised that I will know someday, that I will understand someday. We trust in the Lord's plan, and we know that it's the plan that He has for us. So it's a predetermined, it's a predestined and strange path. The second thing, God's plan, God's path to victory is a promised path. I'm not going to stay on this long, but I want to point this out because it's cool. 
Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph, Joseph with him. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. I'm not going to give you much on this because we've talked about the promises of God and we will talk about the promises of God. But I do want to point out that we know that the path of God is God's path and the Israelites were on the path of God because it was a promised path. How do we know that it was a promised path? Because Joseph went with them. Joseph went with them. Genesis says in uh, Genesis, uh, excuse me, Moses wrote in Genesis 50, 24 through 26, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. Hundreds of years, by the way, before this exodus. I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of, his la- out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after that, they embalmed him. He was placed in a coffin in Egypt. God had laid it on Joseph's heart what would happen, that the Israelites would be in Egypt for some time, but that the Lord in his perfect timing would take them to the land that he had promised. So Joseph was like, take me along for the ride. Take me with you. To the point where he made them promise that if they were going to go, not since they were going to go, not if, since they were going to go, he was going to go with them. And then we can know that this is the path that they were supposed to be on because God, because Joseph's bones were not in Egypt anymore. Joseph's bones were not in Egypt anymore. Friends, you need to know there are certain signs, there are certain realities, there are certain truths in your life that show you that God is working and that His promised plans are happening. You'll have to be able to recognize those. Some of those are simply found in the Bible. Some of those are found in miraculous events. Some of those are found in just peace and just an understanding that God is God and we are not. But we understand that God's path is promised because Joseph didn't stay in Egypt. It was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would go to the promised land. And Joseph said, look, I'm going to go with you if you're going to go. And so as long as God's as long as Joseph was still in Egypt, the, plans of prom- the promised plans of God that was difficult have not taken place. But once Joseph leaves Egypt, the promised plans of God are being fulfilled. Friends, today your path might be difficult, it might be tumultuous, and it might be one where you can't see an end. But friends, you are on the promised. If you belong to Jesus, if you are a Christian, you are on the promised path of God. And as we walk along this path together, as we encourage each other, we take verses like Romans 8.28 and we understand that all things work to the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His plan, who are called according to His purpose. His path is strange but predetermined. His path is promised. And God's path is a path protected by His presence. God's path is a path protected by His presence. Look at verse 20. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and led them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from them before the, did not depart from before the people. 
How do we know that the path was protected by the presence of God? Because he sent a pillar of cloud to guide them in the day and the pillar of fire to guide them at night. This is an unexplainable phenomenon, but it is a literal one and a real one nonetheless. A real pillar of cloud and a real pillar of fire. Again, the presence of God was real and it was present. We don't know exactly when the pillars left them. Many of the other uh, things like manna and the things that God provided along the way left the Israelites after they crossed the Jordan and were in the promised land. So it is assumed by many that the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire were with them along the whole journey. Forty years. But there are some truths that the, from the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire um, that, tell, that tell us about the protecting presence of God. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire let us know that there is no limit to what God will do to protect his children. This is a supernatural act of God. It is an over-the-top showing off to the other lords, to the other rulers, that he is the one God, that they are his people, and he loves them, and he protects them, and that there is no limit that God will go to, or no limit that God will not go to, to protect his children, except to deny himself or to deny his character. He will do supernatural, over-the-top, amazing things for you and for me, because that is in his character, and he loves us. There is no limit to what God will do to protect his children. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire tell us this. God's protection is not cold or indifferent. The Israelites were in, de in the desert and they spent 40 years there because of their own denial of the power of God. But the Lord did not leave them. He was not indifferent about their well-being or their comfort. The cloud by day was not just there to guide the people of God during the day, but it comforted them and it protected them from the hot desert sun. The fire by night did not just, uh, it was not just there to light the way at night, but it warmed the people on the cold desert nights. God is not some cold or calloused or indifferent ruler, but a loving father, and he protects his people, and he loves his people. And one of the sure ways he protects and shows that he loves his people is by being present, is by being there. And that's what the cloud and the fire represented, that God is not some cold or indifferent Lord. That he meets our needs. Not only, not only spiritual needs, primarily spiritual needs, but also physical needs. Most Christians will, lead, will live a life of somewhat comfort. Or at least with a mindset of being comfortable. Because even if a Christian doesn't, even if a third world Christian doesn't live like a Western Christian, if they're growing in the Lord, they live with a contented mindset. And so there's a level of comfort that even they receive. It only comes because the presence of God never leaves the children of God. The presence of God is always present with the children of God. You know it. You feel it. You see it. You know it because it's the, it's the still small voice that guides you away from temptation and away from sin and towards holiness. It's the, it is the voice, not just a consciousness, not just a, a conscience, excuse me, it is the voice that keeps you on the right path. It is the voice that makes everything that you do a God-honoring work if you're doing it to the glory of the Lord. God's protection is not cold or indifferent. And then just in general, the pillars 
were a reminder of the presence of God. The pillars covered the people of God with his presence, and the pillars also led them, uh, led the people of God along the path. Listen, friends, this is important. The pillars of God were on some level representative of the Holy Spirit of God, who is making us more into the image of his Son and is covering us with the seal of his protection until we die or until Jesus returns. Just as the clouds gave the Israelites direction and protection from the scorching sun, so too does the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. As the fire lit the way to know the true path, so too does the Holy Spirit light the way of truth for believers. And as both the cloud, of, uh, the cloud in the morning and the fire at night never left the presence of of the people of God until they got the promised land, so too the Holy Spirit never leaves the people of God. His presence is always with us. His presence is always a seal and a confident understanding that God is with us until the end. The Lord blesses us with His presence. The Lord not only blesses us with His presence, guys, but the Lord's presence is what will change you and I into the likeness of Jesus every day. My only question is this. Is what the Bible says and what God has done in your life enough to change your life today? Is what the Bible says... And what God has done in your life, enough to change your life, knowing that the presence of God is with you and in you and working through you and able to do that. Is the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, able to make you more like Him? Is is He able to make you resist that temptation that's greater than you think you can resist? Is He able to make you love somebody that you think is unlovable or that you can't love? Is he able to restore relationships? Is he able to make friends out of enemies? This last thing and we'll be done today. God's path to victory is a powerful path. Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses... Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the foundation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians... Whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. God's path to victory is a powerful path. We are here again with the children of God, with the desert surrounding them, with enemies on each corner, with the Red Sea at their back. They are hemmed in, and Pharaoh is coming. And the people of God ask Moses, was there not enough room for Pharaoh to just bury us in Egypt that you had to bring us out here and let him bury us out here? 
Now we see this pattern of doubt and uncertainty that really never leaves people and tends to follow people of God in general. It really is innocent enough. Typically doubt and uncertainty in the plans and purposes of God creep into our lives because God puts obstacles in our way that we cannot overcome and we can only overcome with His presence and His power. Here's another thing that will make you sound dumb. I'm not. If you've said it before, I don't want to hurt your feelings. Just don't say it again. God never puts anything in your path that you that's too big for you don't say that don't say that don't say that because there are people who've lost loved ones that still can't understand why God put that in their way don't say that it's not it's not smart here's what's smart God is going to bury us sometimes so that we will realize the only way to get out of the grave is to be pulled out by His power and His presence. He will hem us in with Migdal on the one side and the other one that I can't remember how to pronounce on the, uh, on the other side and the Red Sea at our back and the Egyptians in front of us and the only rescue is for God to part the Red Sea and carry us across. He will bury us sometimes in order that we have to trust and rely on His presence. He will put us in the grave. Don't say God will not give you more than you can handle. You can say God will not give you more than He can handle. That'll sound a lot better. We see this pattern of doubt and uncertainty in the life of believers, and here's why. Because we look with a finite mind, but we serve an infinite God. We only see one solution. The Israelites looked at the wall to the left, the wall to the right, the Red Sea to the back, and the wall of Egyptians coming at them. And they said, the only solution is that we die today. We should have stayed in Egypt because there's only one solution. And God's out here, you know, like, you know, Neo or something like that from the Matrix back in the 90s, if you know that. And he's like, He's like, see, he sees a million different plans. He figured, he's already figured it out before it even happened. And the rescue's already done. It's been predetermined. It's been sealed. It might have been a strange path. It might have been a weird way to get there. It's always weird to back yourself into a corner if you know that there's weird routes in real life, okay? It's weird. Uh, if you know that there's different routes, it's weird to back yourself into a corner. You shouldn't do that, okay? But with the Lord, He knows other answers. He knows other solutions. He knows other ways. And ultimately, it's so that we will become people who are dependent on His power, who are dependent on His might. Typically, friends, the solution along this path is going to be out of your hands. To the hardships, to the trials, to the struggles, it's going to be out of your hands. It's going to be more than you can overcome. But it's not more than, it's not more than God can overcome. Remember how unsearchable, how unsearchable, how inscrutable His power and His majesty are unmatched. And the Israelites had their back to the wall again. And Moses says, hush. Stop trembling. Stand firm and see the salvation. Don't even speak. This reminds me of first grade at South Haven Elementary School. I don't remember being as, as jerky as I am now. But evidently I was a little bit because I, was, I remember getting picked on. You know, this is sort of vague but I remember getting picked on. And then Billy moved next door. Billy, we were in the first grade, and dude probably was two, 225. I don't know. 
He was like 6'1", 220. That's what it felt like because he was a good five inches to six inches taller than everybody else in the first grade. And he was huge. Billy moved in next door. And I still have this image that goes in my head every once in a while, being on the playground and someone coming up to me and pushing me and me looking at Billy like this and Billy going and taking care of business. I promise you, this is what happened. This is not a made-up story. This is not, I'm not trying to be funny. Billy was my best friend until I had him feed our demon dog Gideon and it bit his finger and then he didn't like me anymore. (laughs) Billy... I didn't have to say anything to Billy. Billy had my back. He wasn't a bully. He was a protector. He didn't go around bullying people. And I didn't, I don't think, I don't remember going around, go around bullying people. But Billy protected. And if Billy witnessed me being bullied or me being treated unfairly, I didn't have to say anything to Billy. Billy went straight to the perpetrator and he took care of business. Most of the time, it was just a mean stare down. Because if a dude in the first grade that's six foot five, 280 pounds, meets you, I mean, you don't, <laughs> you don't, <laughs> you don't, you don't mess with him. The same thing is what the Lord said, what Moses from the Lord said to his people. He said, God sees, don't fear. God protects, don't shake. God knows what's going on, don't even talk. You don't have to tell him. Now, that's not an indictment to not pray to God. That's just for this here. Friends, I want to tell you, I want to tell you, for the Christian, we are more than overcomers. And God has given us a way to overcome. It's through his power. It's through his might, through his love, through his protection, through his presence. We must, because of who we are in Christ, we must relinquish our fear to him, cast our fear to him, stand firm, and see what the Lord will do. The good news is this. Oftentimes you think that God's protection for you, God's care for you, God's love for you is dependent on your ability to give back to God, but it's not. God's protection and God's care and God's love is dependent on him being true to himself and getting all of the glory. Friends, I'm not saying to go out willy-nilly and be crazy and do what you want to do and and disobey God and and just be a, a heathen and expect God to just approve of it. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying this. You don't have to go your whole life feeling unworthy of the power of God because he's going to work in you because he's true to himself even when we're not true to him. He's going to work in you because he deserves and knows how to get and will get the glory even when we don't deserve, even when we don't know how to get, and even when we can't bring him glory. Pray with me today. Lord, you are good. And we trust you because you're good. Because you never fail us. Because you stay true to yourself, Lord, you will always be true to your people. Lord, one of the greatest things I've ever learned in my life is that you love me in spite of my sin.
that in spite of my sin, you sent your son and commended your love to me to die for me. Lord, one of the next greatest things I learned in life is that you want a better life for me than the one I was living pre-Christ. And that you give that life to all who repent and trust in the name of Jesus. Lord, would you help us to trust in you today? Would you help us to be more like you today? We ask these things in the precious and holy, unmatchable, inscrutable Jesus Christ. Amen.